incremental change is the most important thing that visionary types underestimate because incremental change is not sexy. Making something a little bit better every day is totally not as fun as relaunching everything every six months. I came up with George Bush toilet paper and to promote it, I was doing morning drive time radio with a stripper. I hired a stripper who would do live on air radio demos of the Bushwives. In 2012, something really major happened. Could have put the whole thing in the garbage can. Could have shut me down forever. It could have ruined my spirit for entrepreneurialism. It was a devastating event. That was the one big thing the company got through. And it was, it was Obama reelected. I was joking. My name's John Fisher. I live in Boulder County, Colorado, and I founded Sticker Giant 17 years ago. We are a 50-person product label and promotional sticker printing company. So do you only deal with stickers? No, more than half our business is uh, product labels. Just any packaging we might see at a supermarket, you're saying? Yeah, any sort of label you'd see on a bottle, jar, bag. A lot of stuff for small purveyors of food and independence seems to be our specialty. The main customers you're saying is the food products. Is there anything else? One of the great things about Sticker Giant is when you look at our industry concentration, we have none. We are all over the map from marijuana industry, beer industry, food industry, just everything you could think of. Field services and technology and vape pens are a huge segment for us. So we do lots of different kinds of work. It makes it a lot of fun. You said you're in Denver, Colorado. I don't know if you said that or not. but We're in Boulder County, Colorado. And were you born in Razor? How'd you get there? I was moved here almost 20 years ago by Whole Foods Markets to help run WholeFoods.com. Why don't we go back, I guess, even a little bit further for a second and say where you went to school and I guess how you got to Whole Foods Market. I'm not sure if that's the first big step in your career or what. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a big part of it. Everything that I did in my 20s, even starting in high school, led to starting my own company. I uh, grew up in Elmhurst, Illinois, in a pretty wealthy suburb. I was the youngest of four kids and went to York High School, great high school in Elmhurst, Illinois. Really enjoyed my time there, although I was a bit of a juvenile delinquent and uh, had a lot of fun in high school. In high school, I was really, really entrepreneurial. That led to college, where I Went to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. And when I was there, I, I helped run a bagel cart and had all kinds of other entrepreneurial side ventures while I was there. I ended up with an art degree out of SIU, Carbondale. It was a commercial art degree in photography, specialized. And so I took that degree and I moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, I started just going around and knocking on the doors of photographers and film people that were doing commercial work. And I eventually patched together a handful of photographers that I would work for, uh, for a day rate. And it was a lot of fun. And I did everything from doing photography, doing, you know, test shots and loading camera backs and to catering and holding umbrellas for models and winding up. I was really, really known for my ability to really neatly wrap an extension cord, which is a really big part of photography, extension cords. That was the beginning of my career. From there, I found out a program that was being run by a big international printing conglomerate that a friend of mine's father was an executive, and he invited me to join this, apply to this program that they had that took artists and art majors and people who had an artistic background and taught them how to sell. 
and I made it through this program and I ended up getting hired by the companies, the companies called WACE, W-A-C-E. I don't even know if they're an entity anymore, but the idea was they're going to take artists and teach them how to sell so that we could go into the advertising agencies and sell retouching, color separations, and all the services that we offered. I did really, really well at that. I have the sales gene and the ability to do, put the business dots together and make money for the companies I work for and be able to interface with artists seamlessly. And that was a really big step in my career because I learned so much about the ink on paper, ink on plastic printing world back then. I don't want to skip over. It sounded like a really important point. How do you wrap an extension cord properly? You know, you don't wrap it around your arms like people do because a cord has sort of a natural twist to it. So you get it in your hand, you have your left hand loose, and you do about an equal arm's length, an equal length by extending your arm out. And then you sort of twist with your fingers in the direction that the cord wants to wrap around your hand. And you wrap the whole cord up like that. You leave about three feet at the end. And you make a nice tight winding around the cord in the middle to hold it all together. Push the male end through the, the bundle, tighten one of the loops to hold it down and hang it up by that loop and you have a perfectly wrapped orange extension cord. I guess people can rewind and play that slowly when they get home or wherever they are to make sure they're doing it right because those are perfect instructions. Oh yeah, we should get together and maybe do a how-to YouTube video on that. We bet we get millions of views. There you go. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, you're talking about from ways. Were you making an okay living at that point when you're doing the photography? As a young guy right out of college with no family or mortgage, it was so fun because I worked for myself and I got a day rate. And if I wanted to take a day off when there wasn't a shoot, I could do that. Yeah, I made an okay living. I made the most money in my early career selling. When I was selling and getting paid a commission, that's when I made the most money. But at some point in that cycle as being a sales guy, I wanted to go back and be that artist. And one day I called on a new customer. It was an ad agency, The Leap Partnership. And they were a small, super hot, growing little ad agency in Chicago. We had a shared client, Tommy Armour Golf. They were building Tommy Armour Golf's website. This is like at the beginning of the internet. I was producing Tommy Armour Golf's printed advertising material. And I had to go to the agency and pick up some art assets like transparencies and stuff. And I walked into this agency in my suit with my Motorola brick phone. And I felt so out of character because I was in this cool hot agency sitting on a retro couch in the lobby. There's a tiki bar with like retro antique golf clubs up behind it and people walking around in flip flops. And I'm like, I'm at the wrong place. So in the course of that meeting, picking up the assets, the art assets from the agency, I was meeting with, with one of the senior guys in the agency who's going to hand it over. And I asked him for a job. Two weeks later, I was working there running their print production and art asset management. And I took a huge pay cut to move from working in the suburbs and wearing a suit and driving downtown and being a sales guy to taking the train to work, working in an ad agency with a bunch of people my age and having a lot of fun. And it was one of the best things I ever got to do. What type of pay cut are we talking about? Half. I think I went from making, you know, almost $100,000 to making like $35,000. So almost like even more than half. It was crazy. Your family think you're crazy? My wife was on board 100%. We had just bought a three-flat apartment building that had tenants. So we were in one flat, and then we actually even had a basement apartment. So we had three people paying us rent, so our mortgage was paid. We had just had twins. We had boy-girl twins who had little infants. She didn't work. The rent was paid. We knew we could make it. I came from a family that was super, super supportive. And you know, I called them. I said, hey, if I fall on my face, 
are you guys going to help me out, get back on my feet? And the answer of my family always was absolutely go take that risk, do that thing. I went and did the thing and got the job and never looked back. It was awesome. Just trying to think from my point of view, did you have a career projection at that point or you just wanted to kind of go somewhere that was, I guess, opposite of what you had been doing that sounded like it was losing its fun? Yeah, I wanted just to get into that new environment. And yeah, I, I thought, okay, yeah, I could have a career trajectory as a advertising agency producer. And some of my assistants that I hired in that agency over the years have gone on and been very, very successful in the larger agency market in that career. But as part of that job, as our clients increasingly asked for about the internet, because this was really early and we had all these clients and many, many of them, most of them had no presence on the internet. We formed a part of the agency, a new part of the agency that just helped clients on the internet. And it was new to us, but I wanted to be on that team. I went out and I volunteered. I eventually got switched over to be on the, the internet team. We built really early stage functional websites that are history now. I mean, we built one of the first websites for American Airlines. We got the first one that you could buy an airplane ticket on. We helped FTD Flowers convert their business to the internet. We got R.R. Donnelly the first, helped them get the yellow pages online. We built the first version of MSNBC. We got to do ad campaigns. We helped launch the first 56K modem for US robotics. It was called Countdown to a Faster Net. It was a really early fun time in the internet. It was another good move, even though it was an internal move in the same company, it got me into the internet. That was just such a good choice. So is this about your early 30s when you're doing this? Let's see, my twins were born when I was 29. So I'm like 31, 30, 31 at this point. And so what happened was I was working in the agency making okay money. And my brother-in-law was a young professional at Whole Foods Markets in Austin, Texas. And I had always told him when I started doing this internet thing, I'm like, Whole Foods needs to go online. You know, one day the phone rang and it was back then companies didn't know where to put the internet. So that the chief technology officer calls me and said, I hear, you know, something about using the internet to, for commercial reasons. And you've done these things. And so I went down, I got on an airplane. I went down and I interviewed with some people from Whole Foods and uh, ended up getting hired and moved my family to Austin, Texas was on the first 12 person team that built the first WholeFoods.com and put grocery shopping online for Whole Foods. And that in itself was a really great experience. Learned a lot about what not to do and how to work in a larger corporate environment. And that was the beginning of my sort of entrepreneurial internet work that was truly from scratch. Was this a big increase in pay as well? I think at that point, it was a little bit of an increase in pay from the agency to going to Whole Foods. Whole Foods doesn't overpay people and they are pretty frugal. Well, back then they were. I don't know what it's like today. So that happened. And then, of course, the famous first dot-com crash happened. By then, we had become 400 people in the organization and we changed our name to wholepeople.com. We'd moved to Colorado, bought a direct marketing company and, and merged it in with us. Promptly, we all got fired when the dot-com crash happened. I was in Colorado now without a job. That was the beginning of me starting Sticker Giant. That's how I ended up with some printing background, some art background, some internet background, and now I'm unemployed in Colorado, a really, really entrepreneurial state. Why did they fire you guys? If, were you bringing in income at Whole People slash Whole Foods? Oh, gosh, we were, but we were losing gobs and gobs of money. And once the valuation was gone and all these, the internet bubble had burst in market cap, we were 
total liability. We all got laid off slash fired, whatever you want to call it, and they completely shut the whole program down. And now WholeFoods.com, last time I checked, is really you know fancy brochureware. It's a corporate site. I'm just trying to think from their point of view, I guess they were trying to ax everybody, but if you were new and actually bringing them in income, I would think that they would want to keep y'all unless I'm missing something. Was there something else I'm missing? Why they want to let y'all go? No, it was the dot-com bubble burst. I mean, everybody lost their job. I was the internet marketing guy and they weren't going to do groceries online anymore. They shut everything down. So I was no longer needed. You're unemployed at that point in Boulder, Colorado. I'm unemployed. So I'm in Boulder. Yeah. And weed's not legal yet. Weed's not legal yet. So I rented a $400 a month office from Stephen Tebow. It was like no bigger than, gosh, 15 by 10. Set up an office and started going around town doing internet consulting for businesses in town, building Yahoo stores for outdoor gear stores and Mike's camera and other small businesses around Boulder and was doing okay at that. I was making money. I was enjoying it. And I was on my own in an office and it's downtown Boulder. Can't go wrong there. I don't know if you've ever been there, but downtown Boulder is amazing. Then the election of 2000 happened. And I'm a really super political guy, right? I'm super, super liberal political guy. So the George Bush Al Gore election happens. And of course, it's the year you're from Florida. It's my fault. <laughs> yeah, it's your fault. It was a recount. It came down to recount for five weeks, five weeks. We didn't know who won the election. And it was all came down to Florida, the hanging Chad, paper punched ballots. It was a big mess. So the news cycle at that time was ripe for something. And I, of course, every election cycle, Austin, somebody does this. And I was that guy in 2000 who made the he is not my president sticker. Every election cycle, somebody does it and makes it in the news cycle. And in 2000, I was that guy. But the beauty of it that year was nobody knew who won. So I had 100% of voting electorate was my target market. I launched this thing and that was sort of the tongue in cheek part of the story because experienced reporters knew that this was a reoccurring four-year story that somebody has a bumper sticker about the new president. It was really fun. And it was like a three-day press cycle. It was my first really good non-forced press cycle because I had done press cycles in at Whole Foods where you have PR agencies and you're scheduling interviews and it's very forced and sold. This was like the phones were ringing off the hook. I talked to Paul Harvey. I was Knight Ritter, AP, Reuters, radio programs in the morning. I pushed it as hard as I could and sold like 35,000 he is not my president bumper stickers, mugs, hats, golf balls, t-shirts, all off of my Yahoo store in like a week. Then it was over. You know, the news cycle's over. And now I have like a list of a bunch of names. And so that was my very first e-commerce thing I did by myself. One sticker, one idea, one saying. Well, at the same time, you said you were kind of forced to starting your own company. I mean, had you saved up money before you, the sticker thing seemed like a one-off thing, but really your business that you had been trying to do was being a consultant. Is that right? Yeah. And I did have savings to fall back on. I had money from Whole Foods stock that we had gotten a little bit. And then I had savings that I had on my own. So I had a little bit of a, I was very lucky. A lot of people don't have any sort of runway, but I had about a year runway before I completely ran out of money. And I even had like extra money to invest in the business if I needed to. I think I might've started with maybe $80,000. I did that. The three-day news cycle was over. Within a few weeks, I came up with this concept of sticker giant. Like, okay, I had one sticker design. What if I had 
all the sticker designs? What if I was the Amazon at the time, Amazon only did books. Uh, what if I was the Amazon of stickers? Came up with the concept. A few days later, I was visiting my brother in Glen Ellen. I drove by a sporting goods store. It was kind of like sports giant, maybe. I can't, I don't exactly remember, but it was a sporting goods store that had the word giant in it. And I thought to myself, sticker giant. By then I had upgraded to a little Ericsson phone. And so I called my friend Mike, who I knew was probably in front of his computer from my car and said, hey, can you go on VeriSign or, uh, or whatever the domain registry we used back then was? I think it was maybe register.com. I'd have to look that up. And it was available and we got it, a sticker joint. And then him and I met and we came up with this strategy. We're going to build the Amazon of stickers. And we launched the site like, shoot, six months later with like 600 different designs. I went right back to my PR roots and started promoting it online. Back then, the only pay-per-click advertising was called Overture. I used that. Later became DoubleClick and Google AdWords and all that stuff. But all we had back then was Overture. Started the business that way, picking and packing orders at night. We built the site on a shopping cart platform called Miva Merchant, which is still around, I think. That was the beginning of Sticker Joint with 600 stickers and a really primitive Miva Merchant store with a VeriSign merchant account, my wife and I doing everything. Were you running the numbers on like back of the envelope to try to figure out if this would work? Like, hey, you know, if I sell this many stickers at this price or was it just, hey, I had success with this one sticker. Let me just go ahead and start a company. Yep, that's what I did. I did no business plan. My brother, who was, he was 10 years older than me and has a very serious business consulting background as opposed to his artist's wacky brother, was like, John, have you ever written a business plan for this? And he, would, he was giving me a hard time. He's like, dude, do you know how many stickers you got to sell at $1.99 to put your three kids through college? He was sort of like, you should take that consulting job at IBM. Eventually he got, he's like, wow, you're selling a lot of stickers. And so I did no business plan. All I knew is when I started making money because my bank account went from almost zero. I almost ran completely out of money. Had started like falling back on the credit cards for big purchases. And when my bank account started going back up, I'm like, okay, I'm making money now. And I didn't even know how much because I didn't do financials back then. All I did was run my business from my computer and my slow ass internet connection and just worked it all day long every day and did PR and did everything I could do to promote the business. Were you still in that office that you purchased or were you working from home at that point? By then I had gone through a major overhead reduction plan and moved back home into my basement. And so <laughs> at that point I was fully in the basement, sharing the basement. It was half sticker giant, half the kids playroom. And as sticker giant grew, they got less and less playroom and that moved upstairs. Was your wife working at the time? Yeah, so we had three little kids. So she wasn't working yet. She was at home, but she would pack orders at night and I would work the marketing and running the business during the day. And then when it got to about 40 orders a day, I had to get some help because she's like, John, I got these three little kids. I can't pack 40 orders a night. Forget it. I'm no. And so she really hasn't been involved in the business since then. But just that early help that she gave me just to get started was all that I needed. And I hired my first person at that point. She's still with the company 15 years later. It was a good hire. But there is a funny story in the early days of Sticker Giant because we launched a couple months before 9-11, the horrible terrorist attack in New York. George Bush was not very popular. I was at that point firmly very left-leaning. My product offerings were very left-leaning. 
I came up with George Bush toilet paper. Every election cycle, somebody else comes up with the presidential toilet paper, right? But that during the 2000 election, I was that guy. I had the Bush wipes, Dick wipes, Ash wipes, and colon wipes, which is the cabinet pack. So it's George Bush, Dick Cheney, John Ashcroft, Colin Powell. And so it was the cabinet pack as a four pack, and I sold it online. It's the it, haha. And to promote it, I was doing morning drive time radio with a stripper. I hired a stripper who would do live on air radio demos of the Bushwipes. <laughs> it was ridiculously cheesy, but I sold tons of it. It was so funny. That was a good little promotion. And then 9-11 happened and suddenly George Bush was very popular again. His approval went up to 70s. I wasn't going to be able to make a living just making fun of George W. Bush anymore. I happened to be the only guy at that time in the internet with flag stickers. Literally, I was think I was the only person on the internet who was selling and shipping a variety of American flag stickers and it blew up. It's like overnight, it blew up. All I had was a Volkswagen Beetle, like the new Volkswagen Beetles. And I would fill the back of the car with orders two, three times a day and would have neighborhood moms and friends over to help pack these orders. And I was ordering more as fast as I could from our supplier. Because at that time, we weren't doing any printing. We were just online store. That blew up our list, got us all kinds of incoming links, patriotic stickers, et cetera. And it really, like, that was sort of the, the hockey stick to the retail portion of the early sticker giant that helped me get to the point where, okay, I'm making money now. This is a real business. I think I was probably still checking the monster.com boards on a daily basis at that point, but that was a big boost. You're talking about you hired a stripper on a radio to do these wipes? Yeah. I figured I'm going to be authentic. Even though they can't see her, I'm going to get a real stripper to do live on air, quote, live on air demos of the bush wipes. Of course, we weren't actually doing live on air demos with the bush wipes, but it was a real stripper doing demos of the bush wipes on air. So it was fun. <laughs> Did you get that connection by paying for an ad spot at a local radio station? That's the only part I'm confused about. What was your connection with getting on the radio? Oh, no, you just morning drive time radio shows. We have the inventor of the bush wipes. Ha ha. He's going to do. I mean, it's, it's, it is perfect for morning drive time radio for wacky radio. I know every market has one. I don't know who it is in Orlando, but every market has a wacky, rude, two person morning drive time radio team. That's what I was doing was those teams. And the, the story was. The founder of Sticker Giant, who has these bush wipes, ha ha ha, is going to be here with his friend Charisse to do a demo of the bush wipes. It was just another little shtick in their radio program, but it allowed me to plug my website. And, yeah. Uh, was that free then? It was fun. Of course it was free. Okay, yeah, cool. It was editorial, yeah. That's smart because that's what I'm just thinking about. You're kind of running out of money then. That's why I was wondering if you paid for an ad spot to do that or what, but you're getting free publicity basically by doing it. Other than I'm sure you had to throw some ones at the stripper, right? Yeah, people love sex and they love politics. You mix them up, you're good. And they love potty humor. On morning drive time radio shows, like 30% of the humor is potty humor. Let's talk about you sold these USA stickers, right? And then who are you sourcing them from? A printing company. Gosh, I think at that time we were using a printer and where are they? Like uh, Kansas, maybe. Lancer Label. A wholesale printer that prints for businesses that we'd buy them in bulk and ship them out the door one at a time. They guess they were doing the, even the USA flags for you? Yep, we had flags at some point. We added in the actual fabric flags and you know everything having to do with that. That was a big boost. And then it allowed us to keep expanding our product line. When that business was fully mature, we had 23,000 different sticker designs online and stocked in our warehouse. 
let's talk about going from that. It was 2001 or 2002 is basically when that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you hire one person. So it's a two-person team at that point. Let's talk about the expansion over time and what you've learned now looking back. That was the first stage of the business was, okay, I'm going to have a retail online store. My average order size was like $17, all right? My markup was a typical keystone or more, so 100% or more. It was a pick and pack operation and it was volume because to make any money at 16 bucks a pop, you got to sell a lot. And so that business grew slowly year after year till about 2000. Eight, when George Bush was going away, we were diversifying our product line. And in 2008, by then I had moved out of the basement. I had a warehouse space in Longmont in a local town. And I had a group of part-time moms that would come in when they dropped their kids off at school, come in, pick and pack orders. And it was, it was a great little business. I grew that to maxed out 2008, million dollars a year in revenue. But Austin, at that point, it was cool because I was dominating the search engine rankings for any term related to sticker at that point. Like number one for stickers, custom stickers, sticker printing, everything was number one. And the phone rang all day. People saying, do you guys print stickers? And we would say, no, we don't. Go to websticker.com, okay? And one day, one of my best employees came to me and said, John, some personal circumstances in my life have arisen. I need to make more money. I gotta work full time. What can you do for me? I grabbed a catalog of a printing company, it's a wholesale printing company. You place an order with this company and they drop ship it like it's coming from you. And I'm like, here you go, start selling stickers. And I handed it to her. I'm like, when the phone rings and people wanna order stickers, get the artwork emailed to you, figure it out, get an order, here's the prices. And that was day one. And within a week, she had done a whole bunch of revenue. I don't know exactly how much, but it was enough for me to go, oh crap, this is a real business and immediately started building another part of my website for custom printing. That was the beginning of Sticker Giant Printing was we were brokering. We were just selling for somebody else who was drop shipping it and taking a big markup. That was how we got started in, in the printing part. You said you were number one for Sticker and Google for a lot, a lot of different terms, basically. Was that on purpose? Was it from your background of understanding the internet marketing? And can you tell us how you're able to do that? It was natural. It just happened. We were popular. The site was well-built. I was doing all the right things, getting press and doing article marketing back then is what you did. And I followed some basic protocol and had great rankings. It was really amazing. It was free advertising. It was like heroin. I didn't have to pay for any pay-per-click. I had no real marketing department. It's just the phone rang and the, and the website was busy. That was 2008. And we're still running the retail sticker business, picking and packing those $17 at a time orders. And now we had just started brokering the printing just by answering the phone with no systems or anything. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Like, tell us about that then basically. I want to leave it very open-ended on how you were able to kind of make this second business part of the sticker giant. Well, it was very incremental. One of the sticker giant rules of 12 laws of business is to get to greatness, you got to get better every day. We made incremental changes. The girl who was doing the first sales function, answering that phone and writing those orders, she was by herself and she just started entering orders into a spreadsheet. That spreadsheet evolved into a FileMaker database, believe it or not, FileMaker, old, old time Mac guys will be like, FileMaker, that's still around? Oh yeah, it's still around, it's really awesome, and it's completely compatible with all the major database types that are out there today, and we still use it. We started with this little 
homemade FileMaker database that I built at night. I had a friend who did FileMaker programming and we would meet at Connor O'Neill's Irish Tavern in Boulder after work and work for a couple hours on like Thursday nights and improve it every Thursday night. We'd meet for a few more hours and do stuff and work on it together and make it better. And that was the beginning of the database. Still at this point, I wasn't doing any advertising. The orders were just coming in because my search engine rankings were amazing. That business grew to about, it quickly usurped and passed the retail part of the business, the pick and pack stickers part. And it grew up to 2012 to about $3 million in sales, maybe a little bit less. And I'm brokering. I still have no manufacturing equipment. Then that's a whole nother story how we got to manufacturing. Because that seems like a whole nother step other than just a brokering part where you're kind of easing your way into it. How many employees did you have at that point? Let's just say 2012 before we started doing your own. I think we were probably less than 12 at that point, And a lot of them were part-time. So I still was doing the bulk of everything. I was doing the accounting. I was managing the IT. I was starting to do some social media and paying attention a little bit to marketing, but not seriously. We didn't really do marketing well at that point because we had the free heroin of Google ranking. It's like free money coming in the door. So I was doing everything at that point, paying the bills myself, et cetera. Of course, we'd added, I got a little bit of office help here and customer service help there. And I think we were still about 12 people at that point. But in 2012, something really major happened that could have put the whole thing in the garbage can could have shut me down forever. It could have ruined my spirit for entrepreneurialism. It was a devastating event. And the company would, if I didn't get through it, that was the one big thing the company got through. And it was- it was Obama reelected? No, it was Panda. I, I was joking. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, no, I humor myself, uh, sorry. Okay, yeah, and for Panda, for people who don't know what it is, tell them what it is. So March 12th, 2012, they rolled out the first Panda, Panda Penguin. It's an algorithm changes to Google. At that point, my gig was up. My article marketing was deemed spam by Google. I got penalized and I literally disappeared from the first 10 pages of Google results for all my key terms. My traffic went from mega to nothing overnight. All I had was repeat customers coming in and a big ass email list of people. It was devastating. I did not know how to move forward. I didn't have a marketing department. I took it. Emotionally, it was a disaster for me. Business-wise, we had a flat year. We were a little bit down that year. But what happened was I learned to really, really appreciate the 10th law of Sticker Giant Business, which is all strengths lead to weaknesses. And our strength before March 12th, 2012 was SEO. We had all those organic rankings. Why did we need to know how to actually do marketing on the internet? or actually do content marketing or search engine marketing or social media marketing. We didn't have to do any of that. We're number one, man. In fact, we didn't even have to be good at customer service back then because if somebody got pissed off because we stunk, the reviews weren't mature then, and we, got, we had another four people on the phone behind them. So we weren't good at anything because of those search engine rankings, just giving us free business all day. So March 12th, 2012 is when things had to change. And boy, did they change. This is a completely, completely different organization than it was then. I don't even know where to start. You know, where we started was, okay, we got to learn how to advertise on the internet again because we had all this free traffic. And so we started doing that. We got to learn how to be really, really good at customer service. So we did that. We got trained. That's a whole nother story. Some, all of our people, we teach them the Zing train method of customer service. It's a whole program 
fantastic. That's when we had to really get serious and run this business competitively. We're now $15 million company with 50 employees. We got through it. We kicked some serious ass and hockey sticked. What did you learn about marketing and I guess customer service and all that stuff? Because it does make sense if you were always the number one guy there, it didn't matter what was going on. But so what did you have to teach yourself? And was it just like you thought about it, this out of thin air or did someone advise you, hey, now that you have no SEO and people coming in the door, did they give you some tips on, hey, you need to learn how to do marketing or you need to learn customer service? I have some really, really close friends that are entrepreneurs in Boulder and around the country. One of my closest partners actually owns 10% of the business, and his name's Bill Flagg. Bill Flagg's been on the cover of Forbes magazine because he is a really unique angel investor, and he doesn't even like being called that. So he's not an angel investor. I don't know what to call him, but he's an investor, and he looks for partners who have cash flow positive businesses, small teams, and he helps them get real about their business, gets implement processes and procedures, and to grow your business intentionally. And so one of the very first and early things he did with me was, John, you need to adopt open book finance. And open book finance is now, we're still doing it to this day, and it's how we run our company. It's full transparencies with our finances. The only thing we don't share is what individual salaries or hourly rates are. But we immediately got the whole team involved in, okay, guys, these are all of our expenses. This is our income. These are our key metrics. And we're going to go over them every Tuesday morning as a team and know whether we're on track or off track and what we got to do to get things on track. And so we started being very intentional about knowing where we had to be, knowing what our metrics were, reporting them in a, in a real-time basis, sharing them with the team, and, and expecting action from the team on how to do it. And the best thing for a founder CEO when they do that is they're going to realize that their team wants to help. Their team wants to help the business survive and grow, but they don't have the levers. In a 12 to 20 person company where the founder's still there, I guarantee you most of the levers are still residing in the chief executive chair. And so it forced me to start letting go. I got a marketing person. I got an accounting person who controlled costs. I put somebody in charge of customer service. So the customer service, we had a methodology. Here's what good customer service looks like. Here are the steps that you do. Here's what happens when a customer is upset. Here are the steps you do. And so it taught me as a non-management person, somebody with an art background and just had come up with this business out of my basement to divest my responsibilities and get good people and back them up and support them so that they can do great work for you. When you're doing all that, is there one thing in your mind that sticks out more than the others that help to, I guess, reshape your company? All right. So there's a handful of things. The first thing I would do for any entrepreneur out there who's trying to build a cash flow positive business. And when I say that, I am differentiating an entrepreneur trying to build a cash flow positive business from somebody who's trying to build an idea or a concept that they're going to get investment money on, flip and be out of in three years. Okay. That's a different, that's a very city of Boulder, venture capital, angel investor sort of world that I don't understand. They never have to make money. They can hire lots of people, have super fancy offices and be gone in 24 months and they, they made a bunch of money. I, I don't, I'm not smart enough to do that, but for entrepreneurs that want to build cash flow positive businesses themselves, I suggest they read The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham. It is the single most powerful book in all of my closest friends that are founders and owners of now large cash flow positive businesses. The Great Game of Business is the one. That's the one book. If I had to pick one book for any entrepreneur to read who wants to do what I've done, The Great Game of Business by Jack Stack and Bo Burlingham. 
And do you have a quick summary of anything that hopefully intrigues someone enough to go ahead and buy it? There's a whole community around the great game of business. And there's several different approaches to open book finance now because it's a concept that is sort of starting to hit. It's becoming more popular. More and more companies are hearing about it and small businesses, medium businesses, large businesses. And in fact, when you really think about how large publicly traded businesses are run and report their financials, they're running open book finance in a very different way than a small company does. And so it's like a small company acting like a big company. The one thing that I would say is that the great game of businesses immediately forces founders to get their record keeping in check. You will often find founders of small businesses who say, oh, I think I'm getting to break even. No, dude, you need to know if you're a break even. And for you to say, I think I'm getting to break even, I now know what your problem is. You got to get your accounting game totally on track. All right. And then you got to get your planning game on track to an appropriate level for your business. Certainly small businesses don't need to plan like fortune 500 companies, but you got to get your planning game on track. So you should know what your revenue is and what your expenses are every month for the whole next year. I know what my income will be, what my gross revenues will be and what my net will be at the end of the year. And I know that I know that it will be this way because we plan every year and every year we meet or beat our plans. So the old adage of set a vision and run towards it and you'll reach it. And in business, it's so true. The vision for a great growing cash flow positive business built by a founder cannot, that vision can't stay in your head. Get that vision out of your head, put numbers on it and share it with your team and point them towards the vision, not towards you. Thank you for suggesting that book because finally it's one that there's a lot of the books that we hear that we've heard time and time again. This one, I have it. 88 reviews on Amazon. It's not obviously super well known. So thank you for giving us the tips on that. Is there anything else looking back that you'd want to tell an entrepreneur who's starting his business what to do or mistakes you've learned from? Yeah. So (laughs) incremental change is the most important thing that visionary types underestimate because Incremental change is not sexy. Making something a little bit better every day is totally not as fun as relaunching everything every six months. But incremental change is this incredibly powerful, powerful thing that is powerful over time. And I have many examples of sticker chain. And my favorite example that we have right now running in our businesses, if anybody refers us to a friend or a colleague and we figure it out, whether it's on social media, whether we hear about it through customer service, whether we hear about it through a how did you hear about us report that we ask our customers, no matter how you refer us to your friend or colleague, If we hear about it, we're going to track you down. We're going to find an address. We're going to write you a handwritten card, send you a gift box with like a hat or a pint glass or candy or all the above, and we're going to send it out to you. And we track that number every week. Last week, it was 45. We've been doing this for four years. How many of those thank you boxes do you think we've sent? I don't know the number sitting here, but I bet it's more than a 1,000. And just think of that number. We've taken a thousand people who liked us, who enjoyed their experience with us, and we have recognized them in a meaningful way and turned them into super referrers. And we see it over and over again is incremental change. You know, that tactic isn't what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is doing something every day over and over, even though doing it once makes no difference to your business, doing it a thousand times or a hundred times is where it makes a difference to your business.
And you're saying it was 45 last month? No, 45 last week. Oh, last week. Okay. Well, then, yeah. <laughs> well, then, uh, yeah, I don't know what your growth's been, but if you're doing 45 times 52 is, times four, it's basically nine, a little over 9,000. Right. So it's a lot. And it wasn't always 45 a week. And when it started, maybe it was five a week. The other thing that I would suggest that people do is look up the 12 laws of business by Zingtrain, Z-I-N-G-T-R-A-I-N. Zingtrain is a management consulting firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan that I'm a huge Kool-Aid drinker of. I love their method. I love their message, their method, their message. I love how they teach their classes. I love the way that they present their knowledge. And the 12 laws of business are really, really powerful for entrepreneurs to understand. And, and in fact, my favorite and most requested presentation when I go out and I do, I talk is Sticker Giant's 12 Laws of Business, which is also happens to be Zing Train's 12 Laws of Business. I just have a certain way of talking about the 12 laws. Go out, look up the 12 Laws of Business, read the little section on all the 12 laws, understand them because you can actually run your business day to day just by referencing the 12 laws. Like you got a problem in your business? Oh, I'm gonna solve it with number nine. 90% of your problems you're going to be able to solve with one of the 12 laws of business really easily. Is there a website on your website? I couldn't find it. Is there a way that people could find out about y'all's 12 laws of business? Absolutely. I can send you, I can send you a link. If you go to our blog and search for 12 laws, so stories, or go to our website, there's a search bar. You go 12 laws. This blog post is called, this is how we do it. All right. Well, yeah, we'll put that in our show notes as well. Yeah. And I think if you Google the 12 natural laws of business, that is going to give you, here, let me test it. That's going to give you the result you want in Google. So those are really, really powerful. And then for any business that is dealing with consumers or small businesses is concerned about customer service game. If you're trying to figure out how to teach your staff or how to get your customer service game down, this same company, Zingtrain, has two books and a class that you can take and a couple DVDs that are super simple, super powerful. If followed by everybody in your organization, you're just going to have a much better work culture and relationship with your customers. It's the Zingtrain Three Steps to Great Customer Service. And then it's the Zingtrain Five Steps to Handling a Customer Complaint, which of course, handling a customer complaint at Sticker Giant now is a competition sport. Because if we drop the ball, which we try to never do, we try really hard to never do. But when we do drop the ball and we upset a customer, often that customer has their own business that they care deeply about. So people are really, really emotional about their labels and their stickers. If we do the five steps right, that customer is now a fan of Sticker Giant forever and will turn their one-star review into a five-star review every single time. And that makes sense. I mean, dinner the other night, they kept forgetting some food and then they took something off of my bill and it turned me from like a one star to a five star. I, I like free food. So absolutely. Little things like that make sense. Do you want me to do the five steps of handling a customer complaint? Let's do it. Do we have time? Yeah. Okay. Here's the five steps. So the first step, customer complaints. The first thing you got to do is acknowledge it as a human being, as them, meaning my stickers didn't show up on time and I missed my event. Think about that. You're running an event. You're the stickers you ordered from Sticker Night didn't show up. Oh my gosh, that's horrible. I would feel terrible about that. Acknowledge it as a human being that this is actually a really bad event because when you're working in customer services, Sticker Giant or any company, okay, people don't get their stickers. It's not a trivial thing. It can become trivial because it's a part of your everyday life of UPS losing packages or whatever, but it's not trivial to the customer you're talking to on the phone. Acknowledge it for the importance that it is, all right? And then apologize. People want to be apologized to right away. I am so sorry. That has got to be feel bad. 
but sometimes customers are really, really upset and they're swearing, they're still yelling, they're really upset and they cannot be consoled. So you go back to acknowledge and you do it again with different words and then you apologize again. And then if they're still mad, you do it again. And it's called the acknowledge apologize dance. And once the customer calms down enough to move on to the next step, then you make it right. What can I do to make this right for you? Here's a couple ideas. Don't make them come up with it. I can refund all your money today, reprint your stickers and get them shipped by tomorrow. I can fully refund your order and give you $100 off on your next order, whatever it is. Oh, I see you're in Denver. I could print them tomorrow and I will have one of my shipping people drive them to you tomorrow at your office in Denver. You need to make it right with the customer. And then the fourth step is thank the customer because customers that have problems and then when you handle those problems correctly, make companies better. So you thank the customer. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. We're going to take steps so that this doesn't happen again to anybody else or you. And we really, really want to make sure that you understand that you've really helped us make Sticker Giant a better place today. You got to thank them. And then the fifth step is you actually have to follow through on that thanking and you have to record the mistake, keep track of it and review it as a team and take steps to improve whatever caused the problem. So that's the sticker giant five steps of how to handle a customer complaint. And if you use them in your organization, you're going to turn one star reviews into five star reviews. And also make your company hopefully a little bit better over time, like you're saying, with the incremental change. Oh my gosh, once everybody gets into the game of we want everybody to be happy no matter what, it's a one-upsmanship. People now love, like if somebody gets into a, a circumstance in our customer service department where they got to do the five steps, they talk louder because they want their coworkers to hear them do the five steps awesomely. We have some people on our team that are really, really good at the five steps because they've been here a long time. We don't make that many mistakes, so you don't get a lot of practice. But when we do, when it happens, we have some people on the team that can really do it right. And I think it does make sense to tell those people, thanks for complaining, because how many people just don't say anything and they're angry? You would have never known if they wouldn't actually called it in the first place. That goes for this podcast as well. See what I'm doing here? Austin at millionaire-interviews.com. I've started doing some intros or outros also saying, if you have any things I think I can improve on, I'd appreciate it because a lot of people are going to listen and not necessarily do anything. So it's just by taking a minute and even if it's all negative, I can take it, but it's just, it's helpful when someone actually, you do hear that feedback on the other end. So I think that's really smart to acknowledge that as well. That's right. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Is there anything else that you might've wanted to share? You know, Austin, I love this business. I, I love startups. I love talking to founders. I could talk for hours with you about things I've learned over the years, things I'm passionate about in business, things that I wish every young business person knew. So just have me on again sometime and we can do a whole nother round. Maybe I'll teach you the rule of 50 next time or something else. That'd be awesome. I was thinking the same thing because it sounds like you've got a lot of info you can help share and a lot of passion for it too. So that's important. So people are actually excited about it. So hopefully when we air this episode, I can start getting some feedback from the audience and get some questions from them and we can go over that if that works for you. That'd be great. Love to hear about it. All right. And last thing, if someone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview or wanted to reach out, what's the best way for them to do that? Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Sticker Giant or Facebook. Easy to find, Sticker Giant. Well, thank you for coming on, John. All righty. Thank you, Austin. If you have questions for John that you want answered on a follow-up episode, then leave us a voicemail at one 985 3469. This is our new phone number for all of you to voice your questions or comments about the show. So just leave your name, place where you're calling from, and message, 
and we'll play your recording for our thousands of listeners worldwide. Again, that number is 1-305-985-3469. People don't care who they are.